Please turn with me to Genesis chapter 18, verses 16 through 33. You could also follow along on page 7 of your bulletin. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sins so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are fifty righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the fifty righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, If I find fifty righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of righteous is five less than fifty? Will you destroy the whole city because of five people? If I find forty-five there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again he spoke to him. What if only forty are found there? He said, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only thirty can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. Abraham said, Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only twenty can be found there? He said, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only ten can be found there? He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. This is the word of God. For the past um, month and a half, we've been looking at passages in the Old Testament, confusing passages, disturbing passages. Disturbing to a lot of people, these are passages, a lot of people look at these passages and they say, this is the reason why I don't believe and I can't believe the God of the Bible. He's filled with anger or there's so many confusing aspects, even seemingly contradictory to what we're supposed to or what we've heard about God. And, and so we're looking at some of these passages, many of them in the Old Testament. So we're going to go through the Old Testament. And, you know, we get to this passage here. You have to understand at the beginning of Genesis chapter 12, you get into the life of Abraham. And to give you a little context about Abraham, Abraham was called out of this context. He was called out of Ur. They were traveling to a place. They they reached a place called Haran, and and they stayed there for a while, and he was called out of that place. You have to understand, in those ancient times, Abraham was being called out of his social context, his his cultural context, his, his socioeconomic context, his religious context. This was home. And it's not a risk the way many of us kind of uproot and go to college. It wasn't like that. When you left home in those ancient times, when you actually leave, that was like death. 
You're, you're literally not just leaving a city. You're leaving your family, your lifeline, your status, your reputation, anything that anybody knew about you in your history and in the future to go to this foreign place. You are placing a lot of things at risk, and yet God called Abraham out of that context. Abraham actually left. He obeyed. And so from that point on, he was living on the basis of a promise that God made to him, on the basis of his calling and a promise. And so he was going to face uncertainty and danger and risk throughout his life. And so he endures economic losses, sacrifices, wars, and threats to his life and his family. How does he do it? We have to understand this. How does he do it? He prayed. He prays. Constantly you see Abraham connecting with God throughout the course of his life. Now, a lot of people pray. A lot of people talk about prayer. A lot of people uh, believe in God. A lot of people say they talk to God, but Abraham wasn't just reaching out to God. God actually reached out to Abraham. He called Abraham out. So God was coming to Abraham, and God was speaking into Abraham, and what Abraham was doing here is he's, in his prayer, he's responding. Abraham's obeying. And so, to kind of set the stage for this passage, in the earlier part of chapter 18 in Genesis, three men, they come to Abraham, and Abraham is really demonstrating a form of hospitality that was very common in that region. He's feeding them, and he's tending to their needs. But during the meal, it becomes very, very clear that one of these men is the Lord. One of these men is God. And they start to talk. In other words, Abraham's praying. He's speaking with God. He's dialoguing. And so from this text, we're going to see three things. How to pray, why we pray, and what it actually does to us. How to pray, why we pray, what prayer actually does. First, we're going to look at how Abraham prayed. There are a couple of lessons. I'm going to give you, I don't know, three, three lessons, three eyes. I tried to make it a little bit cuter. Three eyes on prayer. Uh, God initiates uh, there's intimacy, and it's intercessory, right? God initiates, uh, there's an intimacy, and there's intercessory. First, we're going to look at uh, God initiating. Verse 17, God says, should I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? In other words, whenever you hear somebody say that, they're intending to tell you, right? And so, God lays out this plan, verses 18 to 21. He says, Abraham's going to become a great nation. All the nations are going to be blessed through Abraham. But, then he says, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great. Their sin is so grievous that I myself am going to go down there and I'm going to see it. To see if this outcry is as bad as I've received. Notice, God is coming to Abraham. God reached him. God is talking to him. God is telling him all these things. God is initiating this dialogue, and Abraham's really responding. Often we tend to view prayer as something we initiate. We invoke God. We're speaking into God. God, you gotta do this. That's ultimately what we're saying. God, we need, I need this. You gotta do this for me. That's how we pray. And if that's how you pray, then prayer is really just a projection of your own desires. God himself is really just a product of your own desires. If prayer is, is always you initiating and God, you're expecting God to respond, oh, he's not answering my prayers, he must not exist. First of all, that's terrible logic, right? But if that's how you pray, then God is really merely just a product of your own desires, and that kind of God will never be able to change you. 
That kind of God, a God that is a product of your desires, will never be able to shape you, will never be able to forgive you, will never be able to transform you, will never be able to save you. Not a God that you, you uh, make up. That kind of a God will never make you great. Only a God that actually initiates with you. Only a God that comes down to you. Only a God that actually intrudes and imposes into your life and your plans and your goals and your dreams. Only a God that disturbs you oftentimes, maybe even offends you. That's the only kind of God that can actually shape you. That's the only kind of God that can actually challenge you and change you and actually promise you on his terms Uh, that's the only kind of God that can change your life and actually make you great because it's a God that you didn't make up. Remember, a God that you make up has limits. The limitations are as far as basically what you know, what you see in the world. So we have to understand that, first, prayer is God initiating and we're responding. He responds through his word. He responds through, that's his speech. He responds through his worship. He responds through personal experiences where God's word is speaking into you. Secondly, it's intimate. God initiates, but you notice in this passage, Abraham responds with a form of familiarity. There's, there's, a, there's almost a, it almost seems kind of casual at times. Verses 22 to 23, um, God chooses, he just kind of stays back and remains with Abraham. The other men go off. He stays and remains with Abraham. And from verses 23 to 32, look at the way that Abraham speaks with God. There's almost an assertiveness and a familiarity there in their dialogue. Abraham is practicing almost what was very common in his day. If you come from an Eastern world, you would understand. He's almost haggling with God. You ever haggle over prices? You know, um, you, tend to, you can't do that in a westernized business, but generally in a smaller business, or if you go to the Eastern part of the, country, of the world, they tend to haggle a lot over things. Abraham is asking God. God says yes. Then Abraham says, no, no, I'm going to try to get more. I'm gonna, I want a little bit more here. He's assertive, and yet there's a casualty almost, a familiarity. He's assertive, actually, because he's familiar. Religious people say, well, that's disrespectful. You can't pray like that. You can't go to God that way. But look at Abraham. This is the father, at the least, he's the father of the three largest religions in the world they call him father and yet that's how he approaches god there's a familiarity and yet i want to remind us that there's also a humility and a submissiveness in his tone verse 24 he calls himself dust and ashes so he doesn't go knocking on god's door and demanding things of him that's not that kind of familiarity that's a familiarity without humility a familiarity without submission But in verses 27 and 31, he says, now that I've been so bold, can I ask? Verse 30 and 32, may the Lord not be angry with me. Does that sound disrespectful to you? On one hand, Abraham, he's very aware of his unworthiness. He knows who he is, and he knows who he's talking to. But on the other hand, he's very courageous. What gives him that kind of boldness? What allows him to be that assertive? On one hand, Abraham has an awe towards God. He calls himself dust and ashes. On the other hand, he has a relationship with God. He was called by God. He knows God brought him here. So there's an intimacy. He's been trusting God, dialoguing with God. This is not the first time he's ever spoken with God. There's an intimacy, and that drives his response. Now, religious people, 
if you've grown up in a church, you count as one of those um, religious people. They're respectful to God, but they're not intimate. They think they're intimate. They're not really intimate. Uh, irreligious people, they tend to be disrespectful, very familiar, but uh, also passionate, but they're also not that intimate. To be intimate is to know the heart of somebody. To be intimate is to, is to connect with somebody in a way where you are burdened by their burdens and you are, you are joyful at their joys. And, and so what causes your celebration, what causes your mourning is intertwined with the, with the other person. So religious people can't be intimate. Irreligious people are disrespectful and passionate, but they also are neither intimate, not as intimate as Abraham is with God. On one hand, Abraham, he is more respectful than the religious, and yet he is more intimate and assertive and passionate than the irreligious. Why? How can he do that? It's because he has a very accurate view of God. Abraham's God is not a product of his desires. Uh, You know, he never went to God. God came to him. God called him. And besides, you know, Abraham, he couldn't have. He could never create a God this holy. He could never create a God this just and yet this loving and this, the potential to be this forgiving in his mind. This is a living God. You know what that means? This is, this is a personal God. On one hand, he's holy. On the other hand, and that means, well, he's holy. That means he can be betrayed. That means he can grieve. That means he's got anger, and yet he is forgiving and loving. Abraham could never create a God this holy and this just, and yet this loving at the same time. And so his relationship with God, it allowed him, because God is personal to him, because God is real and personal, and something that's not a product of his own desires, he, it allows him to be humble and submissive and obedient to God, and yet to, be, to take risks to be passionate, to be intimate in his speech. So God initiates. We can be intimate, but Abram's prayer is unique in that it's intercessory. There's a representative aspect to his prayer. When you and I pray, we pray for strength. We pray for endurance. We pray, about, we pray through our desires. We pray, generally, we pray for ourselves. But Abraham, what he's doing is he's leveraging his relationship with God. He's leveraging that relationship on behalf of other people. In verse 20, God says, there's an outcry against Sodom. In other words, what he's saying is, what I hear, what I hear are people crying out because Sodom is unjust. There's violence and it's widespread. There's evil everywhere. There's wickedness everywhere. And Abraham says, okay. But what if, why does he do that? I mean, you can say, you can make a case, Abraham's nephew and his nephew's family, they live in Sodom. I mean, isn't that kind of selfish? I mean, that's a form of selfishness, right? He's praying for his family, and family was everything you just said back then, right? But if you notice, Abraham isn't praying necessarily on behalf of his nephew in Sodom. He doesn't say, Lord, I get it. It's violent. It's evil. Trust me, I visited my nephew. It's bad down there. Uh, But please spare my nephew. That's not what he prays. That's how we pray a lot of times. What Abraham's asking for is much more complex. It's nuanced. In fact, nowhere in the text 
Nowhere in his prayer, nowhere in this plea does he even mention his family. Doesn't even mention them. What he, when he prays for the city, what does he say? He's praying for the wicked. Spare the wicked is what he's praying. He cares for Sodom. He's burdened by the city. What's his prayer? Will you spare the whole city, he asks. I mean, Abraham, he's not praying for wealth. He's not praying for his health. He's not praying for his family. He's not praying for his goals. He's putting himself, it's a risky thing, between God and the evil of the city for their good. He says, spare the city because of the righteous so that the wicked would be spared. I mean, he's looking at the city. What do you see in the city? When you look at the city, I mean, it's cramped. It's crammed with people. You know, you go to, I don't even know why I'm sharing this. I went to Jollibee the other day. Uh, I went to Jollibee the other day, and the line for fried chicken, I mean, the line is just out the door and wraps around. And every time you drive by, you're, trying, you're calculating, when can I go there to, uh, to time it right so that I don't have to stand in this long line? I mean, and people hate that. People hate rush hour suburban, suburban station. You've ever, you know, been down Center City, rush hour suburban station, the train rolls up and people are just cramming into these, these cars, these trains, right? People hate that. But Abraham's looking at that, and what does he see? Thousands upon millions of people made in the image of God. Broken images of God everywhere. And he says, will you spare them? That's what he's praying. So that's how Abraham prayed. Why does he pray? I mean, why can he pray like this? Abraham stands between this wicked city and God, and he's risking his life. He's coming and he's navigating his relationship with God, leveraging his relationship with God on behalf of the people of Sodom. And he comes with such a passionate plea, a passionate prayer. I mean, he's not being reckless, and Abraham is not virtue signaling here. He's filled with a deep understanding, a theologically deep understanding of God. Look at the prayer. I mean, it's filled with richness. And, and from it, you have great clarity as to Abraham's understanding of God. He focuses and appeals. What does he appeal to? He's appealing to God's character. What he knows about God's nature. It's a very rich prayer. Verse 24, he says, will you really sweep away the city? Verse 25, far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked. What he's saying is, I know you. This is not the God that I know. That's not you. I mean, the wicked, yes, they destroy themselves. They're doing it to themselves. So whatever you do to them, it, that's going to be done anyways. But would you do this to righteous people? Will not the judge of the entire earth do right? What's he doing? He's resting on God's character. He's saying, I know you. This is a theological, a deep, clear understanding of God. He's resting on God's character, his nature, and he's appealing to it. He, on one hand, he says, yes, you are judge. You're the judge of all the earth, and you are just. Without a just God, if even one sin goes unaccounted for, evil wins. But on the other hand, Abraham knows. When God makes this promise, in verses 18 and 19, God says, I've chosen Abraham. I've chosen him. 
That's why Abraham's going to be blessed. And his family and all the generations after through him will be blessed. All the nations of the world will be blessed through him. It's not because Abraham's successful. It's not because he is obeyed. It's not because he earned up to God's favor. Abraham knows, he knows that it's all by God's sheer grace. And so he's not reasoning with God on the basis of his own righteousness. He's not, re- he's not sitting there and saying, a lot of us do that. You get familiar with somebody that you respect. After a while, you get so casual and so familiar. You talk to them as if you're equals. And what we do is we basically base it on our own worth, what we've acquired, what we've earned, what we do. And we say, well, I have a right to speak to this person the way I want to speak to that person. That's not what Abraham's doing here. He's reasoning with God on the basis of God's love, on the basis of God's character and mercy, his grace. On one hand, he doesn't say, God, please just let them go. Who is he? He says, I'm dust and ashes. Why would you listen to me? He says, I'm praying for the righteous. On behalf of the righteous, will you spare the city? Now, what he's saying there is is really important. Because what he's saying is this. Sometimes the guilt of a few people can be transferred to a wider group of people. You know, you understand this. In middle school, you have friends and you you have these cliques in school and there's always that one group of people that are considered untouchable. You want to stay away from them. Why? It's because the closer you get to those people and the more you hang around with those people, it's almost as if their disease kind of transfers to you, and the more you hang out with them, you become like them. You become them. In the same way guilt operates, we call it, there's a theological term for this, it's called imputation. It's a transfer of guilt, and guilt operates the same way, because you can dabble and hang with people who are wicked and evil, and after a while, the more you hang out with them, the more you get into their lives, and the more you intertwine your lives with theirs, you start to live out the same kind of guilt and wickedness and evil. That's what happens. And so Abraham is saying, yes, that guilt can be transferred to many people. But Abraham knows, he understands that this city is filled then with guilt and evil and violence and selfishness. And so he asks a very important question. Just the way guilt can be transferred from one person to another in a sense Can righteousness be transferred? For the sake of the righteous, can you spare the wicked? Can the the righteousness of a few be transferred also to many? In verse 24, he says, would you really sweep away the city and not spare it for the sake of 50 righteous people? In other words, can 50 righteous people Can the righteousness of that 50 be enough, be transferred to the whole city so that you'll spare that city? Look at Abraham's compassion and his burden. This isn't a a dialogue. I mean, if you read that dialogue or this this conversation, Abraham's arguing with God. He's, He's struggling with God. He's haggling with God. He's trying to get the most that he can out of this prayer. Will you spare for 50? Yes. I will. Uh, how about 45? Okay, I will. There's almost a tension that builds as you read. Well, what about 40? And you know, as a reader, as you're reading this, you're like, oh boy. Yes, I will. 30? Okay. 20? 
about 10. Is Abraham satisfied after 10? Verse 33, he goes home. Now, wait a second. He kind of just abruptly stops. Why is Abraham haggling? I mean, he's got him. He can go from 10 to 5. 5 to 1. And God's probably going to say yes. He got him all the way down. The appeal is working. You would think that Abraham would say, can I just speak once more? Would you save the city for just one righteous person? Can the righteousness of one person be transferred to all these evil people and you would spare the city? You would expect Abraham to ask that, but he doesn't. He just goes home. Why? He knows. He tried to translate for me in Spanish. Um, (laughs) Because on one hand, why does he go home? On one hand, Abraham knows that God is infinitely righteous, infinitely just, and infinitely sparing. He knows God would forgive. But on the other hand, he knows there's nobody righteous there. He knows. It's not even worth asking. He got him down. And as he's thinking about it, he goes on to 45. He says, okay, well, maybe if I find 40, Would you spare for 40? Yes, I would. All right, I don't know if I'm going to find 40. What about 30? Surely, God, would you spare 30? The the whole city for 30? Yes, I would. I can't think of 30. But maybe 20. Abraham's struggling with his own understanding of the wickedness of the city, and he recognizes the immensity, the the gravity, the depth of the sinfulness of God's people, of people. And so as he's praying, recognizing that God is forgiving, he also realizes there's no one righteousness. There's no one righteous. I mean, this isn't him testing God. He knows God's character. He's appealing to God's character and his nature. And he's asking to see how far you'll be willing to go to forgive. Because I know you're forgiving. How forgiving? I know you're loving. How long? What is the extent of your love? I know you're merciful. What is the extent of that mercy? I know. I know that, that you are a forgiving God, a loving God, a merciful God, a gracious God. He's trying to understand the the extent of that grace. He's trying to understand God more, and so he's praying and praying and praying on behalf of this wicked, evil city. But in the end, he knew no one could stand. No one can stand up to the righteousness of God. No one can stand before a just God. God is infinitely righteous, and he's infinitely holy, and he's infinitely just. Who can stand? Centuries later, in Luke chapter 19, Jesus Christ approaches a city. This time it's Jerusalem. And he weeps over Jerusalem. His compassion and his just burden for Jerusalem, what's supposed to be the city of God. And he knows as he looks there upon the city, there's no one righteous. And so he's weeping and in his burden for Jerusalem, he's weeping for the city. Because he knows no one's righteousness. And he says, if you only knew, and yet they don't. But then in John chapter 17, 
you have a famous prayer. It's what they call the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Jesus prays for his disciples. Jesus prays for all of his people. He prays for the church, essentially. And he says this in his prayer. He says, while I was with them, I protected them. I kept them safe. He's praying about his disciples. Later he says, I sanctify myself that they too be truly sanctified. Look at the intimacy of Jesus praying to his God with burden. And yet he's interceding for his people. He's interceding for his disciples. It's very representative. He says, I myself am righteous, and I'm doing this, that they would become righteous. What does that mean? He's saying, I'm the only righteous person that ever walked the earth. I'm the only one. Adam in the Garden of Eve, when he was created, he was righteous, and yet he failed. And generation after generation, there's been failure. God's promise, working through the book of Genesis, all the way through, weaving into the Old Testament, all the way through until you get to the New Testament, you see the seed of the Messiah. That was the promise, that there will be a Savior that will be born that will come and redeem the brokenness of every generation. He says, I am he. I am the only righteous person. I'm the only one who's the only righteous person who's ever walked the earth. And so I protected my people. I kept them safe. And now I am standing in the gap between you, God, and my people. I'm hanging around my people. What does that mean? I'm hanging around my people. I'm hanging with my people. Transfer my righteousness to them. Spare them. That was the high priestly prayer of Jesus, essentially. Later he prays, I want those that you've given me, that's my people, my church, I want those that you've given me to be with me where I am. He's not talking about geographically. He's talking about relationally with God, and he's talking about his position with God, his place in glory. He says, I want my people to be with me in my position, in my status, in my relationship with you in glory. That was his prayer, intimate with God interceding for his people. He wants his righteousness to be transferred to his people. Friends, Jesus' friends abandoned him soon after, moments after. Jesus' friends betrayed him soon after. Jesus' friends rejected him. And yet Jesus is praying for them. And on the cross, even as they were killing him, Jesus is praying for them. You know what he prays? He's still interceding. He says, Father, intimacy, forgive them. They know not what they do. Look at the intimacy of Jesus with God. As he's dying, he doesn't sit there and pray and say, I thought you were supposed to get me out of this. If I have faith and trust in you, I mean, where are you? No, he, he prays with intimacy. He calls him Father. He's interceding for his people. That's the love of Jesus. That's the mercy of Jesus. That's the grace of Jesus. Abraham, he risked his life. Jesus Christ gave up his life as he's bleeding and dying and suffering. You see, Abraham, he prayed for the city. He represented the city. He stood for them. And what he prayed was, remember the righteous. But on the cross, Jesus Christ cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's praying is, I, you have forsaken the righteous. I'm the only righteous person, and you've forsaken me. 
You've forsaken your son. You've forsaken me. You've left me for dead. Why? Because on the cross, Jesus Christ took on the wrath of God, the justice of God that we deserved as a penalty for our sins so that our lives would be spared. Would God save the city for one righteous man? And he does. The cross is the answer. Yes is the answer for one righteous person. Jesus Christ is our perfect righteous. He's the perfect righteous son of God who died so that we could be spared. On the cross, Jesus Christ died. God is just. Not even one sin of his people would be accounted for, unaccounted for. Our guilt was transferred to Jesus. But on the cross, God is infinitely loving, infinitely gracious, infinitely forgiving. Christ's righteousness was transferred to his people. A lot of us look at salvation as our guilt was transferred to Jesus on the cross. Well, we oftentimes admit that's only really half the gospel, which is really not the gospel by itself. It's Christ's righteousness also being transferred to us. And so our sin was transferred to him. His righteousness was transferred to us. Righteousness, that word, it's a forensic terminology. It's a legal terminology. You're standing before this court and the wages of your sin, you, are, you have been given a death sentence. But then your, your defense attorney approaches, stands before the court for you on your behalf. because You can't speak for yourself. You are convicted, it is evident, and you are dead. And so your defense attorney stands before the court for you and he says, wait a second, I paid the wages already. I already paid the debt. I paid his bail. I paid the penalty already. I was arrested and I died. Spare him. Spare them. Let them go. And it's not just that. It's not just that. Because we received Jesus' righteousness, now Jesus also says, don't just spare them. I want you to love them. Embrace them. Forgive them. And bless them. As your defense attorney, he says, I'm not appealing on the basis of my, your kindness. A, a kind judge who forgives because he's a good guy is not a good judge. I'm not appealing on, appealing on the basis of your kindness or your love. I'm appealing on the basis of your justice. Not despite your justice, but because of your justice, because you are a just God, you will never make them pay again for something that I already paid for. You will never make them pay twice for their sins. It's the perfect defense. He is the perfect person who intercedes on our behalf. And that's why Jesus Christ over and over is called our great advocate. He is our, and he's our great high priest. He stands in our gap he, between God and us, the wicked, and he represents us. And he says, not because of their record, I want you to base it on my record. Not because of their work, not because of their debt that they paid, but because I paid the debt, because of my work on the cross. What does that do for us? What does that do? This is the last point. One, I'm just going to go really quickly because I want to end here. One, it's going to shape your view of God. It's going to shape your view of God. On one hand, you recognize that God is just. If you just focus on the justice of God, you will come to church and you will always be afraid, wanting to earn the approval of people and wanting to just work, work your debt off and you can't. This is a death sentence, friends. This is a death sentence. This is not life on, in prison. This is not life with parole. This is a death sentence. 
So if you just bank on the holiness and justice of God, we are all cooked. But there are people who just bank on the love and the mercy of God, and they don't see the justice of God. If you just focus on the love and the mercy and the grace of God, God is like Santa Claus. He's just a grand old jolly guy who's just always loving and embracing. That love has no cost. And that's not real love. A love that has no cost has no real love. You see that? A love that just says, oh, you know, these things, just bygones be bygones. I'm just going to love you. That has no cost. That's no relationship. You'll never be intimate in your prayer that way. You see that? The gospel gives you a tremendous humility because you didn't deserve. You, you, you deserve the wrath because God is holy and just. And yet what you received was the blessing and the grace and the presence and the embrace and the warmth and the love of God. And so the gospel makes you humble. Yes, I'm one of the wicked. But on the other hand, if you really get the gospel, humbles you because you're a sinner, and yet gives you tremendous boldness and confidence in your prayer. Because you know that just as much as you've done nothing to earn the grace of God, you can do nothing to lose it either. And so you have access to God. You have access. You have you have. Uh, grace upon grace, mercy that flows over. How many times have we sing this? God is coming to you. If you're here, God is coming to you. You can have God. Given to you, receive the blessing of his presence. There's an intimacy there that you can have with God, a passion. You can argue with God without fear that you're going to be condemned. Struggle with the word of God. And yet, look at Abraham. He was submissive, he was obedient, he trusted. It's gonna shape your view of God. Secondly, what it's gonna do is, it's gonna shape your view of prayer. You're gonna see prayer as more about you responding to the word of God, wanting to submit to God, wanting to know God and understand God, and to experience and understand the depth of his love and forgiveness. And, and so when you pray, you pray with that understanding. And because, look, look, if you say, if God loves me, then, then, you know, if that's your thing, and yet you don't see your own sin, there's no cost to that love. We just said that. That love's never going to shape you. That kind of love will never shape you. It's never going to change you. It's never going to move you because God, it didn't cost God anything. So your prayer life is going to be mechanical. You're going to initiate Maybe God responds. It, it, the reason why there's frustration and anger is because essentially you've created a God that is incapable of really dialogue, dialoguing with you in a real way. He's just a product of your desires. And if you focus on just the justice of God, God's holiness, then, and, and you don't see Jesus as the great high priest, then that's not going to shape you either. That's not going to move you either. Because life is going to be about you working and earning. You've got to be the, the person who does the work, and you've got to be the one who earns your way back into God's favor. You'll never know where you stand with God, and so your prayer life is always going to be a little kind of touch and go and, and kind of tiptoeing around who God is and maybe just kind of, uh, you know, uh, extolling him with some sort of platitude, thinking that you can kind of curry his favor. It's going to be all about give and take. That's a mechanical prayer life, you see. There's never going to be any joy there in your prayer life. But if you get the gospel... You're going to see the cost of your sin. That cost of sin is going to humble you. It's going to move you. And you're going to see then the love of God and what it costs to forgive you and redeem you and renew you from that sin. And that's going to move you. And so you're constantly being moved, and you're going to respond. 
You say, this is God, and he is personal, and he is rich, and he is loving beyond imagination, and you're, you're going to be intimate with God. You're going to be grateful to God. You can be honest with God. You can be bold with God to ask for things, but you're going to do that with trust and obedience alongside that awe. You see that? Lastly, it's going to shape your view of the city. If you don't get the gospel, your relationship with God is just going to be about you, what you want, what you're afraid of, what you're suffering, you see that? It's gonna be very selfish prayers. What would allow a person to pray, putting their needs and their desires aside on behalf of other people who may not even deserve anything? You see that? I mean, that is supernatural. You would never do that naturally. To think for other people with the same passion and intimacy and boldness as you would pray as if that is you, you know how you do that? It's because you identify with people. You identify with others. You identify with their weaknesses. You identify with their losses and their suffering, their brokenness. When you identify with people, you're able to stand in the gap. The word, very word understanding people, to understand is what? To stand under somebody and to support them. When you identify with people like that, your prayer will be much more interceding and intercessory. You see that? You're not going to look at people and say, that takes away all the superiority in your prayers. You know, remember in Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells this outrageous story of a Pharisee who's praying on behalf of other people. And he doesn't pray on behalf of other people. The only time he mentions other people is this kind of lowly tax collector who's actually the only one praying an honest, deep, rich, theologically clear prayer. This Pharisee prays, I'm just thankful that I'm not like that guy. You see what he's doing to him? He's putting him, he's giving himself the death sentence in doing that because Jesus says that's the guy that's forgiven. You see that? When you see that God is the ultimate judge and that you are forgiven out of sheer grace because of the righteousness of Christ imputed and transferred to you, it takes away your superiority because you don't deserve it. And so you're not going to look at other people and be like, well, that guy, I mean, how's, why is he so liked in the church? We do that all the time. You know, if people only knew what that guy was really like, you know, he wouldn't be a leader, right, we say. We don't act superior to people. We don't judge people. You embrace the city. When I say embrace the city, it doesn't mean I like to go in restaurants in the city. That's not embracing the city. That's called using the city, okay? It's different. We all do that. I'm not saying there's anything particularly wrong with going to a nice restaurant. I'm just saying that's not embracing the city the way the Bible is talking about embracing the city. When I say embracing the city, you will love the people who walk into your business. You will think about them as broken people who are just in great need. And so you can't serve those needs by yourself. What do you think the church is? It's not a country club for saints. It is a mission center for sinners. It is a hospital for sinners. It is a mission center for sinners. It's where we train and get equipped to go and serve the city. At our cost, you are standing in the gap. You think you're just standing behind a counter and receiving cash from a person in your business. What you really do is you're standing in the gap between God and the wicked, praying for them, thinking for them. You're going to be a reasonable businessman. You're going to be a compassionate doctor. You're going to be a thoughtful attorney. Whatever field you're in, you're going to serve the city. You're going to have a burden for the city. Our church is planted here 
not as some symbolic virtue signaling thing. We mean business. We plant in the cities. We plant in the surrounding areas of the city to promote and get people to have a burden for the city. We want to saturate the city with love and the care of Christ, the mercy of God through our hands and legs and feet, right? That's why we are here. It is not symbolic. We want to saturate our communities with a real view of God that shapes our view of prayer and approaching God and having access to God so we can serve and to rebuild the city. Join us on that mission. Continually join us on that mission. Let's pray together.